Settlement to Superpower, Introduction, Episode 3, Merry-Go-Round. So, hello and welcome back to From Settlement to Superpower. We left off last week's episode with Henry's decision to retroactively annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and to marry Anne Boleyn in the hope of securing a male heir to the throne. His excuse for the nullity suit was that God had shown his displeasure with the union between Henry and his sister-in-law by not granting them male children, which Henry believed was the divine fulfillment of a punishment mandated by scripture. Childless shall they be. Never mind that Henry actually did have a child from Catherine, the young Princess Mary, it was a male child Henry desired, and so it was male children he interpreted scripture to be referring to. Now, this week's episode is going to cover the events of Henry VIII's entire reign, the entire rest of his reign. It's going to be a packed episode, and so don't worry if you don't exactly catch every individual, exactly who did what, when, and where. The main point is we're going to go through the Reformation and generally show how Henry's reign was the beginning of the Reformation, but doctrinally not much changed. It was kind of this tension between Henry's personal orthodoxy and the Lutheran influences from the continent, which chose this opportunity to make themselves felt. So really just try to get the broad strokes of this episode. You don't need to have every name, every date, every law that was passed. Just a general overview of the back and forth, which typified the latter half of Henry VIII's reign. Now the first move Henry tried, in order to get Catherine out of the way, was to convince Catherine that they had in fact been living in sin all these years, and that Catherine should retire to a nunnery. As a bride of Christ, as nuns were called then, she would be able to easily and honorably obtain a papal annulment, thus allowing Henry to remarry. The only problem Henry had with this course of action was that Catherine, though broken-hearted and cruelly betrayed by the man she loved, would not cooperate, and she insisted that she was a queen, not a nun. By 1527, Henry realized the futility of this course. Catherine would not budge, and so Henry decided that his only remaining option was to appeal to the Pope, Clement VII, and have him overturn the earlier dispensation granted to Henry and Catherine by Pope Julius II. That year, Henry sent his secretary, William Knight, to Rome in order to ask for a papal annulment of his marriage to Catherine, on the grounds that the initial papal dispensation which had allowed them to marry in the first place was predicated on mistaken assumptions, namely, the assumption that Catherine and Arthur had never actually consummated their marriage. Now, this very well may have worked for Henry during normal times. After all, you'll recall that he was one of Catholicism's staunchest defenders against Lutheranism, and religion, like politics, was a pay-to-play sort of affair. So normally he would have gotten this dispensation he needed. However, the late 1520s were not normal times. Remember how we mentioned at the beginning of last episode that this period was dominated by the Habsburg-Valois rivalry? Well, 
The primary battleground for these endless wars was the Italian peninsula, and the Pope, who was quite a significant figure in these peninsular power politics, made the mistake of throwing the Papal States lot in with France. Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, who was both furious with the Pope as well as strapped for funds, decided to send a force down the peninsula to capture Rome and hold the Pope for ransom. The Imperial Army, under the command of the Duke of Bourbon, moved south and on May 6, 1527, assaulted the walls of Rome. The city fell easily enough, but as the Imperial troops were scaling the Eternal City's walls, their commander was killed. The mainly Lutheran Imperial soldiers, now unconstrained by any discipline or rule of law, went completely berserk slaughtering men, women, and children, including those in orphanages and hospitals, savagely torturing priests, violating nuns, and desecrating the city's churches and relics. They even exhumed the body of the old Pope, Julius II, and dragged it through the gutters of Rome. All in all, over the next three days, Rome was given over to an orgy of fire and blood, and over 12,000 people were murdered. The Pope himself would have most definitely met a gruesome end, had not his heroic Swiss guards fought off the rampaging Germans and Spaniards just long enough for the shell-shocked Clement to escape to one of his castles via a secret tunnel. The appalling sack of Rome meant that the Pope was now, in effect, a prisoner of Emperor Charles V. And to King Henry's misfortune, Catherine of Aragon was the Emperor Charles' maternal aunt, and there was no way Charles was letting the Pope annul the marriage and disgrace his dynasty. So when Henry's embassy arrived, the most the powerless Pope could do was send another papal legate to England as his own representative. This legate, Lorenzo Campeggio, was given secret instructions by the Pope to procrastinate and extend the negotiations for as long as possible. He was even authorized to set up a legatine court with Wolsey to ostensibly decide the case. But as soon as he felt he could no longer delay passing judgment, he was to adjourn the case to Rome immediately. He was not to annul the marriage under any circumstances. Meanwhile, back in England, the royal court was rent into innumerable factions, all squabbling ostensibly over what was becoming known as the king's great matter, but in reality struggling to increase their own power and diminish that of their rivals. We can divide the royal court into three main factions, or to be more precise, two factions and then Wolsey. Wolsey was by far the most conflicted of them all. He knew that Anne hated him with a passion and that her rise would most likely mean his own decline, Yet at the same time, he felt himself constrained by duty and necessity to fulfill the king's wish, and the king's wish was that Anne be raised to the throne. Wolsey tried desperately to persuade Campeggio to rule in the king's favor, but the wily statesman must have sensed that the walls were closing in on him. The second faction was that of the supporters of Anne Boleyn. These were really a bunch of rival factions who had just bunched together to support Anne, all for their own reasons. You had on the one hand the Boleyns and the Duke of Norfolk, 
who, as you'll recall, were related by marriage, and who assumed that the rise of one of their own to the throne would necessarily mean a rise in their own power and status. Among those who worked with Norfolk was our friend, the ungrateful Duke of Suffolk, who was sick and tired of being indebted to the overly powerful Wolsey, and was actively working to affect Wolsey's downfall. On the other hand, you had the other hereditary nobles, such as the Staffords or the Poles, who actually preferred Catherine over Anne, as they considered the low-class Bolens to be nothing more than greedy and grasping upstarts, whereas Catherine was of impeccably royal pedigree. Nonetheless, these noble families supported Anne solely because they saw in her the downfall of the hated Wolsey. And then you also had those with Lutheran ideas in their heads, who would come to support Anne both because she was reputed to be a Lutheran sympathizer herself, as well as because they saw in her inevitable rise a chance to strike at the Catholic Church's hegemony in England. This brings us to the final, and by far most earnest, of the three factions, the supporters of the Queen, comprised mainly of the clergy. The clergy backed Catherine not only because she was a pious patroness of the monasteries and of learning, which Anne was most definitely not, but also because they genuinely believed that the Pope's dispensation had been sound, dynastic inconveniences notwithstanding. The most notable members of this faction were Thomas More and John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester. Thomas More was, as we mentioned last week, a scholar famed for his learning throughout the entire Europe. More was not, strictly speaking, a member of the clergy, but rather a highly learned and ascetic member of the laity. Throughout his life, he identified closely with the monastic orders, particularly the Carthusians, but his ultimate decision was to pursue a secular career, which he did with much success, first becoming a member of parliament, and later rising through the ranks to become a secretary and advisor to the king, as well as the speaker of the parliament. Moore's most famous achievement, which in fact survives to this very day, is his book on political philosophy, which described an imaginary realm upon which he projected ideas for the perfect form of government. He called this realm utopia, or nowhere, and the word has survived to the present day to denote a hypothetical world where everything is perfect. Anyways, Moore opposed the king's nullity suit, although for the moment he was hardly the figurehead of opposition. That was a distinction held by his fellow parliamentarian, Bishop Fisher. John Fisher was born in Yorkshire in 1469 to a wealthy merchant named Robert Fisher. He studied at Cambridge, where he impressed all by his honesty, piety, and conscientiousness. He was ordained priest in 1491, and soon developed a reputation as a master preacher and orator. Fisher was stern and incorruptible, and he was known to place a human skull before him during mass and meals, in order to remind himself of the fleeting nature of this world and its pleasures. He stayed on at Cambridge until 1504, when he was tapped to take over the bishopric of Rochester. The bishopric of Rochester was the poorest, smallest, and oldest in all England, 
having been reputedly founded by St. Augustine himself. In the past, Rochester was considered merely a stepping stone for clerics to advance up the rungs of the career ladder, but Fisher insisted on remaining and tending to the diocese, which he did with great devotion for over 30 years. Despite his personal austerity and his harshness with heretics, Fisher gained a reputation as a kind and charitable bishop, and by the time we encounter him in our story, he is 60 years old and easily the most respected and beloved priest in all England. Fisher vehemently opposed the nullity suit and was genuinely incensed by the crookedness and disloyalty showed by the king and his agent, Cardinal Wolsey. And so it was when Campeggio and Wolsey finally convened their ecclesiastical court to judge the affair in 1529, it was Fisher who was Catherine's advocate much to the anger of King Henry. Fisher's performance before the legate's court was arguably his finest hour. He skillfully and courageously disputed the arguments of the proponents of annulment, impressing all with his fearlessness. In one dramatic moment, he declared that he was willing to sacrifice his life, like John the Baptist, to defend the indissolubility of marriage. This, of course, left Henry apoplectic with rage as he did not at all appreciate the implicit comparison between himself and King Herod. In any event, we all know how this is going to end. On July 23rd, 1529, after having heard all the arguments by both sides, Cardinal Campeggio shocked everyone by unexpectedly adjourning the case to Rome in accordance with the Pope's secret instructions. The king stalked out of the room in a fury, and the Duke of Suffolk pounded on the table and yelled, By the mess, it was never merry in England while we had cardinals among us. To which the utterly humiliated Wolsey rejoined, Of all men in this realm, ye have least cause to be offended with cardinals. For if I, a simple cardinal, had not been, ye should have at this present no head upon your shoulders. Wolsey was finished and everybody knew it. The Boleyn faction used the occasion of the king's displeasure to hurl any accusation that wasn't nailed down at the hated cardinal, including such ridiculous charges as practicing witchcraft. By October, they had persuaded the king to relieve Wolsey of all his duties and to proceed against him on charges of premonire, which, as you'll recall, although I called it then premonire, instead of premonire, was that law we mentioned back in episode 0.1, which declared it illegal to receive papal bulls in England, something which Wolsey could not possibly deny doing. On October 9th, the day on which the premonire indictment was handed down, Norfolk and Suffolk both appeared at Wolsey's residence and demanded that he give up the Great Seal which would effectively signify his removal from his position as Lord Chancellor. Wolsey resisted, claiming that the king had made him Chancellor for life. When they triumphantly appeared the next day with letters from the king demanding that he relinquish the seal, Wolsey completely broke down. He was a shattered man. When his servants found him, the once great cardinal was in tears, bewailing the cruel blow fate had dealt him. The broken Wolsey was not much longer for this world, 
And so, we're going to jump ahead just to finish his story. Around a year after Wolsey was found guilty for violating the statute of Primenari, a new charge was leveled against him, high treason, on the basis that Wolsey had corresponded with the King of France without Henry's knowledge. Wolsey was arrested and was en route to his cell in the Tower of London, the same cell, by the way, which was occupied by his unfortunate victim, the Duke of Buckingham, when he took ill and died in Leicester Abbey. His final words, which we can leave here as his epitaph, were, If I had served God as diligently as I have done the king, he would not have given me over in my grey hairs. This remarkable man's downfall marked the end of the beginning. From this point onwards, a break with Rome became all but inevitable. Henry divided up Wolsey's innumerable responsibilities among several members of the court, including Norfolk, Suffolk, and an irritable canon lawyer named Stephen Gardiner. But most importantly, the king appointed Thomas More to be his new chancellor. This came as somewhat of a surprise to everyone, including More himself, who opposed the king's position on the divorce. But the king pressured the unwilling Moore to take the job, promising him that he would be allowed to maintain a position of neutrality on the entire affair. Of course, that didn't work out very well. By now it became clear that the Belen faction was ascendant. Their rivals were all dead, silenced or marginalized, and Anne's was the final word in everything. Even Queen Catherine and the Princess Mary were soon to be banished from the court. Yet their object was still not realized. All of Christendom still viewed Catherine as the legitimate queen, and Anne as simply Henry's illicit concubine. If Henry was to get his legitimate male heir and the Boleyn faction to truly share in the fruits of victory, Anne must be recognized as the sole lawful queen of England. And so, Henry tried to bully the papacy into giving him the annulment he wanted, by appealing to the universities of Europe and coming down hard on the English clergy. This first course of action was initially conceived of by a hitherto unknown academic at Cambridge, by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer was always a black sheep, having previously been expelled from university for marrying a barmaid of ill repute. After his wife had died in childbirth, he took holy orders and moved to Germany, where he got involved in Lutheran ideology. He married another wife, and then returned to England. Of course, he had to keep his wife a secret back home, as Catholic priests were expected to remain celibate. So get this, he transported her from place to place in a suitcase. I'm not kidding. Anyways, Cranmer had met Stephen Gardiner, on one of the latter's trips to Cambridge, and greatly impressed him with his erudition and his views on the king's great matter. What Cranmer suggested was that the nullity suit was too great a question to be posed to the papacy itself, and should therefore be posed to the universities of Europe to be debated and discussed. Gardiner brought Cranmer back to court, and the king, also impressed, promoted him to court chaplain, and put him in charge of the campaign. As it turned out, Cranmer's campaign was a smashing success. A great deal of prestigious universities, 
including those of Paris and Bologna, declared Henry to be in the right, and that even a papal dispensation could not justify his marriage to Catherine. This academic support was a great morale booster for the cause of annulment, and the king used the opportunity to browbeat the English clergy into meek submission. The tool which the king employed to this end was Parliament. From 1529 through 1525, the Parliament would be in session, and the so-called Reformation Parliament would eventually provide the king with the legal underpinnings for his ultimate break with Rome. But for now, the Parliament contented itself with taking potshots at the clergy, whittling away at their legal privileges, and feuding with old Bishop John Fisher, who was, then as always, the greatest enemy of the cause of reform. The first move they made, in 1529, was to entirely revoke the privilege of clergy, which we introduced two episodes ago. The next year they upped their game, and allowed the king to proceed with preliminary charges against virtually the entire Church of England, and to thus extort from them some several hundred thousand pounds, on account of their acquiescence to Wolsey's program of action. By the next year, 1532, they passed the Annates Act, which effectively deprived the Pope of the traditional first-fruit tithes. Even more importantly, in what became known as the Submission of the Clergy, the King bullied Convocation, or the Assembly of the Catholic Clergy in England, into accepting Henry as the Supreme Head of the Church of England, with the half-hearted qualification tagged on that this was only in so far as the law of Christ involved. By this point, the great majority of the English clergy were too terrified to oppose the king in anything, and pretty much all of them, excepting Bishop Fisher and a few other brave souls, capitulated to the king's demands. And yet, the Pope remained obstinate. The marriage would not be annulled, and by now the king was growing exceedingly impatient at the papacy, and thoughts of a permanent break from Rome began to occupy his thoughts. Sensing which way the wind was blowing, Moore resigned from his office of Lord Chancellor, just one day after the submission of the clergy. The man who replaced Moore was Thomas Cromwell, a former secretary of Wolsey's. Cromwell was an administrator of great talent, and he applied those talents ceaselessly to further the cause of Reformation, as well as of a full doctrinal and political shift away from Rome and Catholicism. Cromwell will come, in time, to push Lutheran changes so drastically that Reginald Pohl called him an emissary of Satan. Now, it's important to note that up until this point, the Reformation in England did not take on an overtly Lutheran form. Henry still vigorously maintained Catholic orthodoxy with regard to the sacraments, liturgy, and the hierarchy of the church, and indeed several Lutherans were burnt at the stake as heretics under Moore's watch. However, the cause of Anne Boleyn was gradually coming to equal the cause of reform, and her most ardent supporters, such as the Boleyns themselves, Archbishop Cranmer, and Thomas Cromwell also happened to be the most ardent supporters of church reform. By 1533, 
Henry was pushed into unilateral action by necessity. Anne was pregnant. This meant that his long-awaited son might be on the way, and if that son was to be deemed legitimate, he and Anne would need to be married with all possible haste. So, either at the end of 1532 or the beginning of 1533, Henry and Anne were wed in a top-secret ceremony in the king's palace. In June of that same year, Cranmer, who had just recently been elevated to the Archbishopric of Canterbury, declared Henry's marriage to the banished but still defiant Catherine null, their daughter Mary illegitimate, and solemnly crowned Anne Boleyn as Queen Anne of England. Moore, of course, enraged everybody by boycotting the coronation. Now, all Henry needed to do was sit back and wait for his son to be born. But, as we all know, God has a great sense of humor, and on the 7th of September, Queen Anne gave birth to a healthy baby girl, Elizabeth. Yes, that Elizabeth. Despite the letdown of Anne's pregnancy, Henry remained undaunted. He was confident that in time Anne would bear him a son, and that now his most important priority was securing his succession through Anne's line, and so he went back to Parliament. In March 1534, Cromwell got the Parliament to pass an act of succession, disinheriting Mary and proclaiming Elizabeth to be heiress to the crown. By this act of Parliament, every Englishman was required to take an oath that they recognized the act of succession, and failure to take this oath would be regarded as treason. Most of the nobles took the oath without second thoughts. After all, it was a political no-brainer not to explicitly oppose the king and queen, along with the dominant court faction. There were, however, a few exceptions. Catherine and Mary quite obviously, did not take up the oath, and the king knew better than to try and force them. Less tolerant, however, was the king's response to the refusal of Thomas More and John Fisher to take the oath. More and Fisher were already under heavy fire from Cromwell and Anne over a host of charges, including corruption and sedition, and when they refused to take the oath, they were both imprisoned in the Tower of London. The final nail in Moore and Fisher's coffins came with Parliament's passage in November of the Act of Supremacy, which finalized Henry's permanent break with Rome. He and his court were already excommunicated, but they still nominally recognized the Pope as the supreme head of the Church. The Act of Supremacy declared Henry, and not the Pope, the supreme head of the Church of England, and once again, to refuse to take an oath in support of the act was high treason, punishable by death. Predictably, the two men refused to acknowledge the act of supremacy, and this was the final straw for Henry. In 1535, both Moore and Fisher were beheaded on order of the king. Moore's head was put on a pike on Tower Bridge, while Fisher's was unceremoniously dumped in the River Thames. Moore reputedly went to his death in a jocular mood, and embraced his executioner before laying his head on the block. I die the king's servant, but God's first. Fisher as well met his death heroically. On the day of his execution, he
He didn't put on the shirt of hair he customarily wore against his skin, but rather his finest linen garments. When asked for an explanation, he declared that today was his wedding day, and the bridegroom ought to mark his day of joy with fine clothing. But however admirably the two may have died, the two still died. The cause of reform now completely dominated the court. Henry soon followed up his attacks on the church with the dissolution of the monasteries and the visitation of the universities, which shut down all the monasteries in England, gave their land and money up to the king, and purged the English universities of literature and faculty deemed too popish. But while the cause of reform may have dominated, that of Anne herself declined rapidly. Anne was proud, intemperate, and stubborn, and she gradually came to alienate some of her most powerful allies, including her uncle Norfolk and the Lord Chancellor Cromwell. When her three next pregnancies ended in miscarriage, the king turned away from her in disgust and set his eyes on yet another woman, Jane Seymour. This was an opportunity seized by Cromwell to eliminate the domineering queen. You see, so long as Catherine was alive, Henry could not afford to get rid of Anne, whom he no longer liked. He didn't, after all, want to be saddled with the infertile Catherine all over again. But at the end of 1535, Catherine died, broken-hearted and abandoned, a development Henry publicly celebrated, yet privately mourned. But this meant that Henry could now just abandon Anne, marry Jane Seymour, disinherit Elizabeth, and reinstate Mary as his heiress. All the king needed was an excuse. And so, Cromwell gave him that excuse. Cromwell began plying the paranoid king with alleged evidence that, in her desire to produce an heir, Anne was in fact consorting with other men. He extracted confessions under torture from several courtiers of Anne, and by April he ordered her and her purported lovers, which I should add included her brother George, arrested on charges of adultery, which in this case equaled high treason. She was tried before a court presided over by her estranged uncle Norfolk, and despite her and most of her lover's protestations of innocence, she was convicted of adultery, incest, and high treason. She was sentenced to death by burning alive or beheading, whichever the king preferred. Two days later, Archbishop Cranmer declared Anne's marriage to the king null and void, thus disinheriting Elizabeth and reinstating Mary as heir. Five days after that, Anne was taken out to a specially constructed scaffold near the tower precincts. There, she encouraged the people to pray for her and the king, bade her weeping maids farewell, and with one blow of the sword, it was all over. She who is queen of England on earth, lamented Cranmer, will today become the queen of heaven. Eleven days later, Henry married Jane Seymour. The next 18 months were peaceful ones in the king's court, and the meek Jane was everything Henry had hoped for. And when I say everything, I mean everything, because on the 12th of October, 1537, Jane gave birth to the long-awaited baby boy, Edward. Henry was jubilant, as he hadn't been in years, 
The church bells of London pealed joyously the entire day, while hymns of praise were sung in every parish church. Fruits and wine were distributed to the entire city, while the tower's cannons boomed continuously, firing over 2,000 rounds in celebration. At long last, after so much costly sacrifice, Henry had his heir. Yet the celebrations were marred by tragic news. Ten days after her baby was born, Jane suffered a hemorrhage as a result of part of the placenta having remained in her womb. And just like that, Queen Jane Seymour died on the night of October 23rd. She was the only wife of Henry's whose death he truly mourned. During Jane's 18 months, Cromwell and Cranmer had been pushing England ever closer to mainland Lutheranism. Tyndale's Lutheran English Bible was now being disseminated all along the length and breadth of England, commoners were being encouraged to read the Bible for themselves, and Cromwell commanded in 1536 that the Paternoster and Ten Commandments be taught in English, instead of the traditional Latin. In 1537, Cranmer published The Institution of the Christian Man, a heavily Lutheran-leaning handbook for the common person. All of this was deemed greatly subversive by the traditionalist older generation. We're going to call this faction the Catholic faction, because although they had broken with Rome along with Henry and had assented to the act of supremacy, they still staunchly believed in the Catholic dogmas and rituals. The Catholic faction was led by Norfolk, his son the Earl of Surrey, and Stephen Gardiner, now Bishop of Winchester. As Norfolk put it, I never read the scripture, nor never will read it. It was merry in England before the new learning came up. Yeah, I would all things were, as hath been in times past. Jane Seymour herself was also sympathetic to the Catholic faction, although her meekness prevented her from actively interfering with her husband's management of state. King Henry as well was sympathetic to the Catholic faction, and he had Parliament pass in 1539 the Six Articles. We're not going to go into what exactly those Six Articles were in this week's episode, but suffice it to say that they were a strong reassertion of the old Catholic dogmas about the six most contentious disputes with Lutheranism, and the prescription of expressing contrary positions as heresy. As the Six Articles get overturned during next week's episode, we will go through each of them in turn. To counter this growing Catholic reaction, Cromwell decided to bind the Tudors closer to the Protestant continent, and to that end, arranged for Henry to remarry, this time to Anne of Cleves, eldest daughter of the Duke of Cleves, a prominent moderate Lutheran. But this move, calculated by Cromwell to strengthen the reform faction even further, was a complete catastrophe. From the first moment the king laid eyes on his betrothed, he absolutely loathed her. He considered her ugly, had a bad smell, and referred to her in private as the mare from Flanders. Although the king married Anne against his better judgment in January 1540, it was with tremendous misgivings and a great grudge held towards Cromwell. 
This was the big break Norfolk and Gardiner had been awaiting. They presented the king with Catherine Howard, a young and beautiful niece of Norfolk's. The unhappy king was immediately smitten with her, and at that moment, the Catholic faction struck. In May, they presented the king with evidence that Cromwell was in fact a heretic who had expressed positions contrary to those of the six articles. The king, who was furious at Cromwell for having deceived him about Anne of Cleve's looks, swallowed up the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Cromwell was arrested without warning in Westminster, and Norfolk personally ripped off his great seal and insignia of the garter. At the same time, Anne was approached and asked if she would consent to an annulment of her marriage to Henry, an offer she wisely accepted. On the 28th of July, 1540, Cromwell was beheaded without trial on Tower Hill. His execution was very poorly carried out, and it took the drunken executioner, possibly made drunk by the vengeful Norfolk, over ten blows of the axe to finally sever poor Cromwell's head. It was an ignominious ending to a diligent career. Anne of Cleves, however, fared much better than her patron. She was granted a palace, clothing, jewels, and a generous monthly allowance. Even Henry began to like her, now that he didn't have to marry her, and would on occasion even invite her to the royal court. She reportedly lived the rest of her life joyously, wearing a brand new gown every single day, each more beautiful than the last. Lucky, lucky Anne. On the same day that Cromwell was executed, Henry married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. At this point, Norfolk believed that his Catholic faction had held the line, and from here on in, things would swing back towards tradition and Catholicism. But alas for Norfolk, it was not to be. His niece, the Queen Catherine Howard, had been carrying on an affair with her cousin, and it was not long before the king found out. On the 13th of February, 1542, Catherine was beheaded with an axe on Tower Green, in the same place where her cousin Anne Boleyn had been executed less than six years earlier. From here on in, the Catholic faction was in total eclipse, although their final downfall wouldn't come until right before Henry's death in 1547. Now, this episode has gone on long enough, so I'm going to leave off here. Next week, we're going to discuss the very end of Henry's rule, Henry will die, King Edward VI will rule for six eventful reform-filled years, and we're going to evaluate this entire period which we just discussed. We'll have a lot to cover next week, so I'll see you then on From Settlement to Superpower. (laughs) 